Hello and welcome to the Pondering Primates podcast, the official podcast of the University of Edinburgh Atheist, Humanist and Secularist Society. My name is Daniel Sharp, I'm the president of that society and your usual host. The podcast is a veritable cornucopia. We have different guests on each episode to discuss a range of issues from religion and secularism to film, art and literature. If you want to contribute then do get in touch. Our social media and contact details can be found on the Anchor page, but we're easily found by searching our name on Facebook, and our Twitter handle is at UOEAthumSakeSock. So, with all that out of the way, are you sitting comfortably? Then we'll begin. Hello, Daniel here. Welcome to the latest instalment of the Pondering Primates podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Helen Pluckrose. (laughs) who is a writer, the editor of Ario Magazine, a self-described exile from the humanities, and with Peter Bogosian and James Lindsay, the, one of the trinity behind the grievance studies scandal, or sting, uh, which we'll talk a bit more about later, uh, in case anyone doesn't know uh, what that is. Uh, with no. Lindsay, uh, Helen is the author of the upcoming book, Cynical Theories, how activist scholarship made everything about race, gender, and identity, and why this harms everybody. <laughs> so with, with that introduction, I shall say hello to Helen. Hello. Hello, Daniel, and hello, uh, humanist group. It, it's lovely to speak to you. Well, thank, thank you for agreeing. I know you're very busy. So I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful that you, you took the time to speak to me today. Oh no, that that's great. I, I want to um, make some more links with with student groups for, you know, secularism, humanism, free speech, etc. I, I think I think you're the future. You're the solution. Mm. Well, thank you. I've, n- I've never I've never been uh, so warmly described before. That's something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I say I've obviously just given a kind of introduction, but aside from what I've just said, what um, you're the best person to tell us about you and your background. Um, and a little bit about ARIO, how you got involved with, with ARIO magazine, what ARIO magazine is, um, that sort of mm-hmm. thing. Yeah, certainly. My background is in late medieval and early modern women's uh, religious writing, academically. And um, during the process of doing undergraduate and postgraduate study in those areas, I became um, far better acquainted with postmodernism and literary theory than I ever wanted to be. So I have been addressing how this manifests in scholarship and in activism, in the feminism that I have always um, been a part of, but now don't feel that I have a home. Mm. And uh, Aereo is part of, of that. I was writing for it when it was owned by Malhar Mali, and he uh, managed to bring quite a lot of my essays to uh, public attention. So when he decided he could no longer... Uh, run the magazine uh, rather than let it die I I took it over I I wasn't really convinced that I was an editor at that time but it's mm. it's gone from strength to strength still that uh, since then generally we want a wide variety of ideas they're broadly liberal but that doesn't mean uh, left-wing that just mm. means um, open uh, about freedom about equality it means about the opposite of illiberal yeah and um, and, and we're humanist in the sense that we are human-centred. That doesn't mean our writers have to be atheists. Mm. It just means that we're looking at the, 
the material world. We're looking at, at humans and society. And we look at science, we look at art, we look at politics, particularly cultural development. So we have um, probably about 75% of our writers are academics. And the other 25% are, are anything from um, undergraduates to high school students to um, any anybody at all in any kind of job that has a thoughtful idea they want to to un sort of unfold for us mm. we give people a bit more space and time than most magazines mm. well i should i should also just say for full disclosure that i am also i write for ariel magazine um is it yep. pronounced yep. ariel or ariel what would you what would you say is the correct pronunciation um, I, I think it, it can go either way. It's for uh, area Milton's Aereo Pagitica, mm. and I'm I'm a Londoner, so I say Aereo. Iona, of course, is is half Scottish, uh, like you, and she pronounces it Aereo. So mm. I, I, I'm not too bothered by that. But please don't anybody call it Aero. A E R O <laughs> is not the correct spelling, and it's extremely annoying. Thank you. <laughs> Well, I think I think you've given a good uh, sort of prissy of of what Ario magazine is about, um, mm -hmm. and, and for anyone who who uh, it's ariomagazine.com is the web address, so do check it out and contribute if you if you feel like doing so. Um, yeah, right, let's please get, do. Let's, let's get into the uh, as I mentioned the grievance studies um, uh, sting. I call it a sting. Uh, yeah, like Sting will do. <laughs> um, so a lot of people might not know about this. Some some people probably, a lot of people do, but a lot of people won't. So in kind of the sort of most accessible terms, what how would you how would you describe it? What was the reason? What what were the reasons behind it? Um, and what did you do? And uh, perhaps most interestingly, what was the aftermath? The reactions. <laughs> Yeah, well, well, Peter, James and I, we all come from the new atheist um, tradition, and I'm sure many of you will know uh, Peter Bogosian for his book, A Manual for Creating Atheists. So we have a long history of being very critical of... Um, of, of sort of evidence-based faith claims, of unsubstantiated uh, claims, with those that lack evidence, and, and also of illiberal ethics um, because of where we were um, geographically we were mostly critical of Christianity mm. so the new atheist moment has passed but um, we still hold our principles we still um, think that it is very important to society to scholarship generally to have an evidence-based epistemology that, that is knowledge we we think knowledge is obtained by evidence and reason and we think that there needs to be a consistently liberal um, ethics when it comes to human rights, when it comes to race, gender, LGBT rights, everybody should have access to everything regardless of their race, gender and sexuality. So we'd been arguing this for quite some time in relation to religion. And then it was hard um, to fail to notice the rise of a deeply irrational, um, anti-scientific and illiberal movement within activism and within identity studies. So I, as a, a feminist, was finding myself um, increasingly pushed out because of my liberal universalist rules. I, I thought that all women um, deserved equal rights, and this wasn't a culturally specific thing. This had me accused of being Islamophobic, mm. and um, 
and, and I, my feminism has always been very much about the empowerment of women. I, I got increasingly concerned about a kind of feminism which focused on victimhood, which said that um, a lot of people, but women in particular, couldn't cope with difficult ideas, that they couldn't um, deal with um, unwanted um, attentions being asked out. Obviously, I'm, I'm not talking about assault or anything. Mm. But generally, there was this drive to make women seem, again, much more fragile and much less capable of coping with the public sphere. And there's an idea here that we change the public sphere so that women can cope with it rather than pushing women out. But I, I, I still felt and still feel very strongly that this pushes back a lot of the work of the feminists of my generation and my mother's generation, which asserted that we are quite capable of holding our own in any situation, that we have equal ability to access all kinds of jobs, deal with all kinds of people. So I was getting quite concerned both on an academic level because it was becoming increasingly difficult for me to write about what I wanted to write about. I, I like to look at how women used religious narratives to empower themselves, um, particularly in the 14th century. And this was becoming very difficult because there was a requirement to read it through post-colonial theory, queer theory, intersectional feminist theory. So I, I was already in a position where I wanted to address this scholarship. Peter, um, as a, a philosopher, a Socratic philosopher who looks very much at epistemology generally, was also in this same place. And, and Jim, who'd been researching the psychology of religion, although his PhD is in mathematics, um, he he was also getting quite concerned about the religious, irrational, illiberal nature of this rising movement. So we spent several years separately and together trying to point out the problems and argue with them. But we came up again and again against um, liberals and leftists, academics who said, yes, OK, we know there's a problem, but it's it's not a huge problem. It's just a few mad papers. And so we really decided in the end that we were going to go into the system. We were going to see how it worked. We were going to write papers that took hundreds of, um, well, not each paper, dozens in each paper, of these terrible ideas, pulled them together and, and made awful arguments out of them and see if we could get them published. And, and we could. We, we, um, we had seven accepted, four were published by the time we had to go public because we got caught. By by journalists. We got caught by journalists, not by the journals. Um, they, they didn't think, the journals didn't seem to think it was at all fishy that we'd be arguing that um, if men anally penetrated themselves with dildos more often, they'd become more feminist. But <laughs> journals um, kind of noticed the problem with this. So we still had five papers in play by... Um, well, we had seven in play, but there were five that were progressing very well and we were confident that we would get them in, but we had to to call a halt, a halt to that. So that the papers that, that we had accepted included one that, um, in which we claimed to have examined 10,000 dog genitals and could confidently assert that there's a human rape culture and men should be trained like dogs. We published um, one which argued that people only regard large bodies built with muscle as good and large bodies built with fat as bad because of a, um, a fat phobia and a, an irrational hatred of fat people. And so we needed to have um, bodybuilding competitions in which the morbidly obese um, displayed their bodies to uh, non-competitive acclaim. <laughs> and, yeah, I've already told you about um, the dildos paper, which yeah. is, is and I, I had to read these things, but never mind. Yeah. And um, people are also particularly interested in the one in which we took Chapter 12 of Hitler's Mein Kampf, 
and um, changed out um, some words to those which suited um, um, sort of intersectional feminist ideas and then uh, built a load of uh, theory around it mm. so that it, it was essentially the, um, the, the same piece but, but justified by, um, by theory. But the, the most important one to me and, it's, um, and, and the team, we, we consider it our flagship paper, but it, it doesn't get much notice because it's not funny. And that's um, the one that we had accepted by Hypatia in, in which we brought together a lot of scholarship to argue that there is no legitimate way to criticize social justice scholarship. Anybody who um, criticizes it just doesn't understand it. Anybody who makes fun of it, particularly with academic hoaxes, we, we cited um, ourselves essentially with that, um, <laughs> needs to be punished, they need to be stopped, they need to be oh. shut down. And that one was the one that was accepted fastest. Within nine days, they got back to us with a request for a couple of revisions. A couple of weeks later, it was accepted. That's that's almost unheard of. It, it was called a an excellent um, contribution to feminist philosophy. Mm. And it was essentially saying, if you disagree with us, your views are invalid, shut up. So that that was quite a concern, mm. and now I've I've waffled on for several minutes. But did that did that answer everything yeah, you asked I me think to cover? Very comprehensive answer. Um, mm. I think what one of the main or what something that some what somebody could say is is what people said to you beforehand. It's just it's just a few fringe papers. This is just uh, it doesn't really do any harm. And even if it's widespread, it's just academia. It's just academics being weird. Um, <laughs> so a is this is this just a few old papers. I don't think it is, as you've kind of shown. Um, but B, even if it, even if it is infected all of academia, does it matter? Is it just is it just um, academics being obscure? Well, I, I think it's important to to note that it has not affected um, all of academia. It, it's certainly trying to, but a lot of good scholarship is continuing oh, yeah. to to go on yeah around around this so even within the fields of um, say feminist geography where we had our dog paper um um, accepted. There, there's a lot of terrible papers in that journal, but there are also some very, very good ones, some um, empirical um, data, some strong ethical arguments for, um, for the plight of women in various parts of the world that look at the government, at law, at economics really rigorously. Mm -hmm. So the problem is not that this is, is taking over, but that it's, it's, it's happening alongside good work. It's being accepted as legitimate um, alongside other kinds of work, leaving people the choice really to, it, it kind of validates this deeply theoretical and unsubstantiated and, and really quite unethical scholarship. So it is important that it has had such a, a stronghold in identity studies. And, and this is something that annoys me with um, with people who say, oh, but there, there's also problems in, in say, medicine. And, and yes, there are, but we no one says to someone who's pointing out um, a problem paper in medical science that they just hate sick people. Um, they they recognise that it's a problem and that we need good medical science papers. We also need good social justice papers. Yeah. But yes, it, it has also it's spread outside of the. That's what universities are for. Ideas don't um, remain in them, and they're not meant to. People uh, people study these subjects, or they have. Um, sort of compulsory extras that they have to do in social justice or um, anti-racism and, and then they go and become leaders of industries.
Mm-hmm. Uh, their, their role for social justice um, scholars now, uh, diversity and inclusion officers, they're there to be found. If you have a look at, in any major uh, UK job site for diversity, equity and inclusion officers, you'll find them in, in business, in religious organisations, in charities, in government. This idea, these ideas are really spreading out there and some of them are good and some of them are awful. Mm. So it's, um, we've all heard now of, of white uh, fragility. That, that's Robin DiAngelo in particular, the, the, um, the inventor of this idea that if you disagree that you are racist and complicit in racism as a white person, this simply means that you are fragile and cannot cope with the truth, essentially. And this is uh, this was a, a bestseller for over six months. So it really has jumped outside the universities and is affecting wider culture. Well, on um, what was the again? Well, I should I should emphasize that when I said it's affected all of academia, I was I was exaggerating for effect, but <laughs> it's, the point the point is well taken. Um, so that kind of leads on to um, well, what what was the aftermath of it? Did 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 anybody listen? Anybody change their minds? Did they realize there was, there was something bad going on, or was everyone just really defensive and shut you down? What? I, I think there have been there's been more positive um, results generally, I think, but they they didn't come really in the straightforward way of people saying, "Well, I thought you didn't have a point, and now you see I do. I've changed my mind." That almost never happens. Mm. But um, we we had one sociologist who'd written a paper critical of a of the conceptual penis, which Jim and um, that was their first foray, Jim and, and Peter into. Um, into these kind of studies, and it was criticised quite rightly because um, wasn't a. It, I mean, it, it was one that was cited, but it, it wasn't as uh, reputable as it could have been. So it was unclear that there really was a problem. Mm. So he'd been critical of this. With our second attempt, um, he 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 said he he'd had changed his mind and that that he did think there was a significant problem, and he supported us, but. Mostly what we've seen is some embarrassment and some scholars within the fields becoming quite uh, keen to to distance themselves from this kind of scholarship. They've still been very angry with us and um, protective of their colleagues, but they've been anxious to say, well, we don't do this. We, we collect data. We um, look at things quantitatively. We, we provide evidence. And, and that's good enough, really. They can continue saying that, that we're um, fascists or whatever, but if they're if they're inclined to say, inclined to defend their own scholarship as not being like the scholarship we've pointed out, that is a big step forwards. Mm. Also, we found, because typically, having done this criticism of leftist um, academia, um, sort of certain ideas on the left, a lot of the people who have wanted to talk to us about this have been people on the right. Now, we've been quite concerned about this because while, you know, there are certainly ethical conservatives out there we're we're glad to speak to, we don't want to feed an anti-intellectual narrative. We don't want to feed the idea that um, there's something wrong with scholarship generally, that there isn't any need for this kind of scholarship. So we've been wary of this, but what we found... is that um, conservatives who had been very, very critical of the left generally, because we were on the left and had criticised the left, were far more um, inclined to say to us, well done for doing that. We also have some problems and we're going to be looking at, at, at those as well. And the productive conversations have actually happened, which wasn't something we that's, anticipated. Yeah, that's very interesting, actually. Um, 
<laughs> which I also wanted to talk again. This is related to what you just said about your recent ARIO essay, What Social Justice Gets Right. Um, the things that you think social justice um, has to offer. Um, and you think, obviously, a universal liberalist. Um, that that is that is the sort of the best way, but there are some good points in social justice. It's not just, you know, you're not, and well, neither you nor Peter nor James are, are you know, you're not like conservatives or fascists. You're very much in this camp, and you're not doing this to, to destroy or to tear down, um, the the achievements, um, but you what you want to you want to help. You're doing you're doing it to be constructive, not destructive. In other words. So what what does what does what does yeah. social justice get right then? What what and what what does the future look like? Uh, are you hopeful for the future of social justice? For uh, so the future of of capital S capital J social justice, uh, the movement which is rooted in uh, postmodern themes, I'm I'm not positive about that. I'm I'm hoping that that will die, and I I think it should. But what social justice? Um, really does is it presents itself um, as it, as a postmodern way it presents itself as a skeptical system and it applies itself to meta narratives which are accepted uncritically and it problematizes them and now this is not a bad aim at all you know but there have been and there still are some some we uncritically accepted ideas like um, Christianity, like Marxism, populism, nationalism, all of these do need to be picked at. But the problem is that social justice and um, postmodernism, it presents itself as the only sceptical system in town, while the rest of us are all sort of wandering around in a, in a comfortable haze of accepting the status quo. This isn't the case, that the very essence of liberalism is to... To, to do this, this is what it has done. This is how the liberal current has been identified for the last few hundred years. It has criticised theocracy. It has criticised feudalism, patriarchy, uh, slavery, colonialism. These have all been undone, um, picked apart and re, re-examined due to liberal impulses. Science is the very best sceptical system we have. And yet social justice, postmodern ideas present themselves as the only thing in town that's that's doing this. So I, I do think they get this right. And I, I think as well that there have been some oversimplistic modernist views. There has been a tendency to think that science already knows everything, not usually scientists who say this, but um, some overconfident ideas that, that everything is very simple and we can, um, and progress is inevitable. And that, that isn't the case, but postmodernism isn't the way, isn't the best way to, to tackle this. I can share the aims of it. We need to dig into things like white supremacy, see how it's still affecting us, but not with this deeply theoretical way. We need evidence, we need arguments, and we need universalism. We need we need to be focusing on treating everybody the same, on removing social significance from identity categories, not piling them up. Um, I just I was reminded of a conversation I had a little while ago at a party in in, in Edinburgh uh, with with somebody who who was kind of defending postmodern postmodernism as a kind of you know it challenges these grand narratives, and my response was kind of the same. It was like well. 
you know, so, so does liberal values, so do enlightenment values, and so does scientific inquiry. It challenges meta-narratives, but it's, you know, far more soundly uh, based. It's got more evidence behind it. It can correct itself and it can, you know, it, has, it has been shown to have a lot more power and it works. Uh, but yes, mm. sorry, that was, that was an aside. Um, but I know, I think it's, I think I completely agree with you on that. Well, good. I mean, this is something I, I think pe we need people um, to be saying more generally, to, to recognise more, as you did, if somebody says, but but why are you against um, sceptical approaches to, to grand narratives? Just feel confident, say, I'm not. I don't think this highly theoretical method works. I think evidence and reason work. Well, on that, on that note, then, what is um, your book with, with James um, Lindsay? Um, is on the subject. Um, so, is is it a kind of what? What would you say the book is about? Is it, is it kind of just a summary of the Green <laughs> Studies scandal, or is it? Um, is it a big? Uh, we we don't actually mention um, our project in in the book, but it is very much uh, connected mm. to it. So we, we begin by looking at um, postmodernism. The first chapter is particularly long. It looks at how postmodernism arose and it um, shows uh, two principles and, and four main themes that were, um, were, were central and, and key to postmodernism. Then we look at how this evolved in around 1990. And um, these, these themes, these principles, they, they carried on. And um, we look at how they manifested in post-colonial theory, queer theory, critical race theory, intersectional feminism, disability studies, fat mm. studies. And um, then th we look at the last 10 years where there's been another escalation. There's been a real sort of concretization of these very sort of sceptical postmodern ideas in the work of people like um, Robin DiAngelo, Alison Bailey, um, Barbara Applebaum. Your listeners may not know of these people, but they're, they're key in critical race theory, in social justice scholarship more broadly. So we're looking at how over the last 50 years, these key ideas have moved away from their origins, but become stronger and become really part of culture. Then we, we spend a chapter looking at how it's actually affecting uh, culture and society and a final chapter on, on what we should do about it, in, in which we advocate um, a more confidence in liberal humanist approaches. I, I, just, I just crossed my mind there that, I don't know, you may talk about this in the book, but do you think there's an element of, well, I was going to try and be neutral, but I'll just say the word narcissism. Is is it narcissistic, these critical theories? Because I just, I kind of jokingly thought, well, oh, there's fat theory and there's queer theory and I'm fat and gay. Oh my God, there's a whole field devoted to me. Um, <laughs> is, is it a kind of... I, I think... Does it appeal to people because of, of that? I'm actually writing a piece uh, at the moment on, on fat studies, which argues that that it does. I, I, I tend to think that the scholars themselves are not are not being narcissistic. They're 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 thinking that they they see a particular problem. They're looking at it in Foucauldian terms. So for Foucault, um, power is exercised by the way we talk about things. And the, the strongest um, 
indicator that the most authoritative source is science. So he argues that there is a thing called biopower, which is the way scientific discourses work, and they discipline and constrain people, and they're not rooted in reality. So people... In, in all of the theories, um, you know, in, um, in queer theory and post-colonial theory, all of them, they're taking this idea either directly from Foucault or from the surrounding ether and, and applying this to society so that the assumption is always that whatever we see, whatever we see is, is shown as good or bad or normal or abnormal or, or common or where is purely a, co- a social construct. So a lot of the theorists are, are doing this. I wouldn't say that they're narcissistic. They do tend to be um, elite in the sense that this is coming out very much in the most privileged areas, in the most... Um, uh, elite universities. We're not seeing a lot of this in working class communities or community colleges. It's it's very much a sort of bourgeois uh, development and it, it is largely white and Western. But what I think when it comes down to something like fat studies, which I'm focusing on, I, I um, have even less thin privilege than you do, Daniel. So I'm focusing on on that quite a lot because it really is dangerous it's it does appeal to people who have found it very very difficult to lose weight who have really got quite you know developed quite a sort of self-loathing because they're having so much trouble with it and then there is this activism that comes up and says it's not you it's everybody else you're absolutely fine the way you are and you should get angry with everyone else and this isn't supported by the science you know we can certainly have empathy for people who struggle with their weight we can we can suggest uh, useful things for its psychological support there is never any justification for discriminating or being unkind to people who are overweight but suggesting and and arguing in academia with much sort of cherry-picked data that this is actually fine and it isn't a cause of early death diabetes cancer and heart disease is really irresponsible and dangerous that's uh, that's interesting, actually, because I would then say that it's not necessarily narcissistic. It, it almost sounds to me, in terms of the fat studies thing, it's almost it's almost like a contract. It's almost uh, you know appeals to mm. vulnerable people who might have faced a lot of discrimination, and they need some some validation. And these sort of critical theories give people that validation, which um, actually makes me even more angry about it is more it's it's manipulative in that sense maybe not deliberately maybe not maybe it's not intentional but it's Mm. it's, it certainly sounds vaguely similar to a kind of con yes i i think it is It, it is largely um obese people who have intellectualized their um health problem in um, postmodern terms and then formed movements for that other people can can get on board with so it's um, it, it is very sad and it is very worrying I think we can remain charitable about it but we should not um, should not hold back from from pushing pushing back at it so what do you think then what we've, we've spoken a lot about what is wrong with with particularly the humanities and, and critical theory, what should uh, the humanities be for or what should they be about? What is, what is the best of the humanities, in your opinion? What, what value should the humanities strive to, to live up to? 
Well, I, I think so much of of the, what we're seeing as a problem in the humanities at the moment is really a false kind of social science. So I think that there are two questions here. What should social sciences be and what should the humanities be? And I, I think that there are grounds for um, a much stronger sort of social science approach to things like gender, race and sexuality. And a lot of that is still happening, but it needs to be more of an expectation. I myself would love to go and do a PhD in gender studies and then teach it. And I could look at it um, biologically, psychologically and sociologically, but rigorously with data, with evidence. I think there's a real benefit um, to actually understanding how men and women are the same, how they how they differ on average. It, I think this would this would reduce um, expectations to fit in gender roles because that isn't supported by the science within the humanities. I, th I th you know, the, the best of this is humanity. This is where I as a, a literature and history scholar, I want to see us be able to analyze texts again with empathy, with um, universality. We don't have to think everybody, every culture is the same, every time period is the same, but actually being able to relate to different times and different different periods and to see how humans have, have, wor have worked, how they've functioned, how they've coped, how they've made things better in different times and places, the art that they've produced. There should be a much more positive... Um, approach to to the humanities there should still be an evidence base so for example with with me when i i am looking at um how the black death affected women's roles and how we see this in women's writing there's a lot of room for um empirical data there and um calling on sources but there's also within the humanities there isn't anything wrong with interpreting and reading things it's only when there's so much pressure to do so in a certain theoretical way I think yes, I I think I agree. I, I agree with you on that as well. I mean, I think we agree mostly on on a lot of things, but um, <laughs> we'll have to try and find so, something yeah. to disagree with. Uh, <laughs> actually, just very quickly, actually, I just wondered if um, is this is this problem in certain parts of academia? Is it is it is it, is it more kind of is it geographically isolated? Is it more? American universities than British universities, for example, or is it, or is it pretty widespread across all of all of the kind of world? Do you think? It, it's it's interesting because there are sort of different hotspots for different things. So critical race theory is really explicitly American, and it's got a long history and much stronger scholarship looking at how. Um, whiteness was constructed in opposition to blackness. So when this gets this framework gets put down on top of UK culture, it, it doesn't work, and yet people try to make it work. Then post-colonial theory has had a different approach in the UK and the US. And um, disability studies and fat studies, interestingly, are coming most strongly right now from the UK, although they have, uh, fat studies has its origins in fat feminism in, in the US. So it really does differ um, sort of from country to country. Australia, um, I'm hearing a lot from a lot of Australians how uh, much this is affecting the arts there, but in other ways, they seem to be uh, less affected than in particular the US. So uh, it would really be very useful for someone to try to 
to track this and to see how it's manifesting. I, I'm, I'm not really qualified for that, but I might have to interest a, a social psychologist in, in it. Do one of those maps, you know, like you get maps where it's like the most popular burger mm. type in a country. You should do that for what, what's <laughs> the most popular critical theory in every, every country. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That would be good. Yeah. Well, actually, on actually, I think I do have a slight dis- maybe not a disagreement, but maybe a difference of emphasis. Um, you mentioned earlier the sort of the sort of new atheist kind of heritage, um, and you you think mm. I think I do broadly agree that it's kind of diffused into the public sphere that the kind of core ideas of of challenging things based on evidence and reason is is not just applicable to religion, it's applicable to everything, uh, especially critical theory. But I'm not, I, I wouldn't really agree that that moment has passed. And because I think it's still very much alive, even though, even though the most kind of the, the sort of imperial phase, if you like, has, has kind of passed. I think that these arguments and these ideas still matter quite a lot, even in societies in the West where uh, where things are becoming far more secular, um, I think there is still a lot of a lot of uh, religious fundamentalism that we might not be entirely. We might be a bit too triumphalist, I think, in terms of thinking that it's all gone, it's all done. I think the argument is still one that's really worth having, and especially in the, in the Muslim world as well, um, we can get a bit too caught up and think, well, the West is becoming very secular. That's wonderful. Uh, but new atheism is really something that you can, I mean, atheism, <coughs> full stop, <clears throat> sorry, atheism full stop is something that you can, you can be killed for in, in, in a lot of the worlds. And especially new atheism is, is something that, you know, if, if, if somebody in Saudi Arabia was walking down the street with Richard Dawkins, uh, Richard Dawkins book in their hand, they, they probably would, uh, well, they probably wouldn't do that in the first place if they were very intelligent, but um, so I do think I think the moment actually still is alive in much of the world. I'd, I would I would certainly agree that the the inheritors of the new atheist um, tradition are certainly the the ex Muslims. They are still making those same um, arguments for the importance of evidence, for the importance of liberalism in very much the way that the new atheists were, were doing 10 years ago. So I, I, I certainly agree with you there. Also, I don't think that it's true to say that um, the moment has passed because the battle has been won. It, it hasn't. It's just the, that intellectual moment, I think, has passed because all the arguments were made. It felt like for a long time, for, for some about four or five years, there were we were we were all having these same arguments. We were calling on Harris, we were calling on Dawkins, Dennett, um, Hitchens, and we were being very uh, assertive and confident in our arguments. And then after sort of four or five years of, of doing this, those of us who 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 were non-religious, the, the new atheists, largely got bored of having the same arguments over and over again and in in his book everybody's wrong about god um my uh, writing partner james lindsay he makes this argument that the moment has passed and it's not that the battle of um, of religion has has been won there are still very many believers but that the battle of ideas that it's all been said this doesn't mean that everybody's heard it so uh, young people particularly are going to need to revisit these arguments they may need to have them um for themselves and um 
and yet yeah, people in other parts of the world where religion really is still uh, very very strong they will need to have them as well so in one way this is never going to go away there are actually um, some wonderful texts from the late 16th century uh, which are arguments for and against atheism when this first arose which are so much like the arguments the new atheists were having but after a while i think the, the atheists got got bored there's only so long you can maintain an interest in something you don't believe in now you are much younger so perhaps you, you're going to argue for this for, for for longer as well and hopefully we're all going to be remain uh, resolutely secular and make these arguments when we need to but i i think I, I do think that that moment where it was all new it was all fresh it was a different approach we're not looking at religion in philosophical theological terms we're looking at it in scientific terms i i think that has passed although it remains useful mm. yeah so i was going to say that actually i kind of i, I kind of make the joke all the time that i never grew out of that of that phase <laughs> i'm still in the middle of that phase so <laughs> Although I like, I like to think that if, if Christopher Hitchens was still alive, it would not be an argument he'd 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 be bored of. I think he'd still be <laughs> crusading about it, as as well as many other things, obviously. But <laughs> yeah, no, I think yes, quite possibly. And I I do think we're seeing another threat now. That I, I when I thought I was done atheisting, it looks as though I might have to um yeah put my gloves on again mm-hmm. because I see within the um the sort of criticism of uh, social justice ideas, what is sometimes broadly called the intellectual dark web uh-huh. um, and, and surrounds, there, there's a growing schism between those who want to, so just quite social conservatives, religious conservatives, they may or not, may not actually believe, but they want us to think positively of religion. The argument is that social justice um, arose because there wasn't religion and people needed a framework. And this is being pushed back at by um, the descendants of the new atheists who are saying no, that there isn't um, a need for us to be, you know, we, we may need narratives, they don't have to be silly religious ones and I think this is epitomized most by the disagreements between Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris Mm. so this is now gaining strength and I have had to have a little bit of an argument with um with people who who think everything's going wrong because we've lost religion and we'd do better to go back to liking those narratives I um I, I, I simply can't do that I would be pretending and I think that's the case for for a lot of people yeah I think uh that kind of there's also that risk that when people it's the same thing as when people think, well, look at these mad, insane left-wing people who are talking about queer, post-colonial, whatever. Um, that kind of just turns people off and makes them makes the sort of social conservative worldview appeal to them more. Mm. I, I think that's, that's something we've said. I, th- I think um, social justice um, has made social conservative cool again, and, and that that wasn't something that ever seemed to be possible so there's still the need to sort of push back at social conservatism at the same time as as pushing back at social justice sort of blank slateism mm. it's it's very messy so it's a war on on many fronts yeah i was going to ask just very quickly as well because we've spoken a lot about critical theory what else interest slash concerns you intellectually slash politically about the world as we see it today 
Well, I am. I'm, I'm. I tend to be quite an obsessive person, so I'm very much focused on um, postmodernism and social justice at the moment. But it's, I continue to be concerned about uh, religious privilege, which is particularly a problem here in in the UK, as we still have um, um, yeah, bishops in the House of Lords and Christianity in schools. And I'm concerned about the rise of populism and nationalism on the right, which is, is really having quite an anti-intellectual, anti-expertise front. So I'm, I'm finding that I'm arguing very much with, um, with, with social conservatives at the same time as, as arguing with, with postmodern leftists. But otherwise, in, in academics, I'm, I'm, I'd like at some point to, to sort of go back to, to religious manuscripts, but um, that doesn't seem to be on the cards. <laughs> I suppose in a sense it's all part of the same argument, which is um, a very kind of, well, it's almost a Marxist view to take of it, that the sort of religion argument is the foundational argument of everything else in terms of empirical evaluation versus um, conservatism and, and a reaction and, and well, feelings and, and, and faith-based kind of solutions in whatever form they come. Um, so I think, I think actually all of these concerns, whether it's populism, Brexit, or Trump, or whatever else, it's, it's all part of pretty much the same argument at the very sort of bottom, at the very foundation. Yeah, I, I think I, you know James and I wrote our manifesto against the enemies of modernity, and that's um, we, we were looking at how the, the pre-modernists and the post-modernists were presenting the same kind of problem. I think as well um, that people like Stephen Pinker have have broken it down into enlightenment and counter-enlightenment or anti-enlightenment views. And I, I think this really often does come down to personality types. There seems to be a type of person who likes to be interpretive, who likes to uh, be in the fog of, of not knowing and, and trying to interpret things through a, a theological or metaphysical or theoretical framework. And then there are the people who, who want to map things out, who want to understand things better, who think there are, there is an objective truth we may not be sure of having it but that is the aim and I, I think these two personality types often underlie what we're seeing politically in in the fight between the sort of universal liberal empiricist rationalists and the um and and the the sort of the, the postmodernists and the pre-modernists on on the other side that's interesting i think there's a sort of irony there about um, the sort of, as you say, the pre-modernists, the post-modernists have this kind of, they're happy to kind of be mystical and theological and all that sort of thing. Um, but at the same time, that often very much leads to a sort of righteous certainty, mm. which admits of very little doubt, whereas the rationalist empiricist might believe in objective truth, but also is very open to doubt and change and logic and reason and argument. Um and I think yeah. that would be the major difference uh, between between these worldviews as well is, is one that's open to argument and one that is just very kind of self-centred and righteous and will brook no dissent. Yeah, I, I, think, I think that's um, a good insight, actually. I hadn't really um, 
thought of it in that angle, but because that, that's quite right. To be doubtful in any useful way, you have to believe in an objective truth and whether or not you've achieved it. If you don't believe there is an objective truth in the first place and everything is just sort of um, constructed, then yes, you, you've absolutely got the imperative to construct things in the way that you think is morally right. Mm -hmm. um, well, we're coming. We're coming up for about fifty minutes or so. So I shall. <laughs> I've got two more quick fire questions. Right. Okay. I shall try to try to be quick. I'm I'm a bit verbose. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean that's good. That's very good. It's very interesting. But this one is well. It's not. It's semi serious. Um, Foucault or Derrida. Mm -hmm. Foucault or Derrida. Who's the um, like most? Who's, uh, I like Foucault most because he's got um, it, he has some good ideas in there, and you can actually understand him. You can pick at it and decide what is you know what how to go with it. Whereas um, Derrida is is much more um, you, you can't. He, he's like a slippery fish trying to hold on to him. He yeah, I, I have no pleasure in reading him at all. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, I remember. Um, when I reviewed A.C. Grayling's book about philosophy, the history of philosophy, oh, I, can't, I can't remember the exact quote, but um, if you take his premises seriously, then um, every book he's written is just superfluous. There's just no need. It's mm. you know, 40, 40 books too many. Yeah, no, that's what I, I said in my, my first essay about them as well. I said, I don't know why Derrida bothered writing anything. <laughs> if, if I could just interpret it as a story about bunny rabbits. <laughs> well, on, on a lighter note this is my last question uh as as a kind of i like i like to end with this um what are your what are your favorite books or films or art or sports or hobbies just what 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 do you like to do for fun apart from um, <laughs> I, I like to to do embroidery and, and listen to detective fiction. I think that this is this is still very much that persona that we were talking about that that uh, psychological trait of um, of liking of, of looking for objective truth of things of trying to map things out. I like detective mm -hmm. fiction because you get a resolution. <laughs> mm -hmm. I you have many twists, but you get there. So yeah, that that's what I I do for fun. I'm currently sewing a map of the Thames. <laughs> mm, oh, very nice. You'll have to share that on Twitter. On yeah, I will. <laughs> <laughs> who's your, who's your favourite detective writer or fictional detective? Mm, I'm I'm a bit sort of torn between um, Jeffrey Deaver, there's Val McDermid, uh, but I think mm. um, Reginald Hill is has got to come out of the of the top at the moment. Mm. I've never read any Reginald Hill. Oh, you you have. You see, he's not writing any. Oh. Yeah, you would. Um, it, he's done so many. You you would mm. love him. <laughs> I, mean, I, I must admit, my main kind of experience of detective fiction is the sort of Sherlock Holmes stories. So I'm very much a, a, a Conan Doyle <laughs> fan. Plus, I can see that about you. <laughs> plus, Edinburgh is, uh, is is his birthplace. There's actually a statue, which is very close to the current sort of gay quarter. Uh, which, which oh, and it says Arthur Conan Doyle was born near here. So I often wonder uh, how Arthur Conan Doyle would have felt that his 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 uh, his birthplace is now uh, surrounded by gay drag queen bars. 
Oh, I, I don't think we we will ever know, will we? But I like to think I'd like to think he'd be happy. <laughs> well, on that note, which is I think quite a good note to end on, uh, I would like to thank you very much for 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 agreeing to talk to me for a little while, and it's been really interesting. So, yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me, and keep keep doing your thing. Well, thank you very much, and I think on that note, we shall we shall sign off. So, thank you, and. Goodbye to everyone, the millions of listeners. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. <laughs> Bye.